This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Soon after the September 11th attacks, the United States began holding prisoners of the War on Terror at its prison facility in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. We've been doing that ever since. At the moment, about 250 men remain in the facility, many of whom have been cleared for release but are still waiting to be sent home. As we know, Guantanamo has been the subject of periodic news stories that focused mainly on the possibility of mistreatment and illegal detention of those being held there. And we also know that it's become something of a symbol in the minds of many for U.S. excesses in the war on terror. This summer, the Supreme Court ruled that the Guantanamo detainees had a right to challenge their detention in federal court. That decision means that the more than 200 writs of habeas corpus that Guantanamo detainees have already filed in district court will now, or at least in time, be heard by a judge. So what does this mean for the roughly 250 men who are still at Guantanamo? I asked Martha Rayner to join me in the studio to talk about the situation and to give me an update on what's going on in Guantanamo. Rayner's an associate clinical professor of law at Fordham, and she's been working as a legal advocate for several of the detainees. Later on the show, we'll talk about the process of collecting psychological evidence to show what's happened to U.S. detainees in Guantanamo and at Abu Ghraib. But first, let's hear my conversation with Martha Rayner. Martha Rayner, welcome. Thank you. Now, first, an update. We spoke about the situation with the Guantanamo detainees about a year and a half ago. What's changed since then? The biggest change has been um, the Supreme Court decision that came out this past June, this past summer, called the Bermidian decision. And in that decision, the Supreme Court said uh, definitively, uh, without any equivocation, that the men who are detained at Guantanamo absolutely have the right to challenge the legality of their detention through the writ of habeas corpus. So it's a decision that's based on the Constitution of the United States um, and not something that um, the president or Congress can change at this point. So I know that we've discussed this many times and it's been in the news many times, but explain just in a nutshell again what the writ of habeas corpus means. Sure. I like to think of the writ of habeas corpus as sort of the most, the first and most fundamental human right. That is the right to ask a neutral arbiter, a judge, to determine whether or not the deprivation of freedom is lawful, whether it it adheres to the law of the land. And it dates back hundreds and hundreds of years to when uh, there was a world in which people in power, typically kings, could throw people in prison for any reason at their complete discretion. And there was no way to ever contest or challenge that. And the great writ of habeas corpus was developed as just a fundamental, very simple principle um, that someone who's independent from the king, independent from the executive, from the president, should review that detention. So this uh, Bermidian decision, tell me what it concretely has led to in the last few months. There's approximately 250 habeas cases pending in the District of Columbia court filed by 250 men that are detained at Guantanamo. Those cases have been in limbo for literally six and a half years because what's been contested all during that time is whether or not the courts had the power to even review these detentions. Um, And so now that the Supreme Court has said very definitively, yes, the courts do have the power to look at the legality of these detentions, that will now happen. So the cases will move forward and judges will actually get to what we call the merits. They'll actually determine whether this individual 
is being held lawfully. One of the things that um, is part of all of this is that the government is now compelled to release information about the detainees. Tell me about that. Yes, and that's a a really um, interesting and troubling aspect of this because it would make sense that when um, a person is contesting their detention, that the jailer, in this case it's the president of the United States, essentially it's the military, has to come forward and say why this person's being held why there's a factual basis, what this person actually did, and why there's a legal basis, why this person can be held. And so the government's being called to account now. The government has to come forward and declare and state that that um, justification and essentially prove it to some extent. This is not a trial. This is not a uh, criminal trial. Um, there's not, there's not going to be a full-blown trial. There's not going to be a jury Um, And many of the due process protections that we know of in a jury trial, such as presumption of innocence and uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, these concepts are not going to be applied to the men at Guantanamo. That's not what a habeas corpus proceeding is. But the government does have to come forward and prove that there is a basis to hold these men indefinitely without a trial, without criminal charges. And so that process has begun. It has already been a very delayed process. Back in July, the government was ordered to start producing this information, um, and already the government is saying, we can't do it. We need more time. It's taking us more time than we expected, even though, again, these men have been held for six and a half years. So it's odd that the government's having such a difficult time coming forward with the information to justify the detention. What has come out so far? It's difficult to know that because most of what's come out so far is classified information. Um, so the government is f- um, so far, and again, they've only come forward in a, in about 23 individual cases with factual justifications for the detention, and most of that information is classified. So it's not something that the lawyers can talk about. It's not something that the lawyers can even share with their clients because classified information we're permitted to have access to it, but our clients are not permitted access to it. So you can imagine that makes for a very difficult um, road to representing an individual when you can't share sort of the most basic facts about why the government says they're keeping you here. So the charges against these people are not public to the people themselves? There's a fraction, a, a very small portion of the the allegations and the conclusions are unclassified. And therefore, the lawyers are permitted to share that information with their clients. But the bulk of it, the vast majority, is classified. A good example is a lawyer might be able to share with a client, um, the government claims that you were in an al-Qaeda safe house in Pakistan in a certain period of time. But the person who supplied that information couldn't be shared with the client. So it's always difficult to counter an allegation like that when you don't understand who's making the allegation and and for your client to help you assess whether that source is trustworthy. Okay, so we have the world of legal proceedings. Meanwhile, at Guantanamo, what's been going on with the detainees? Things are very tough there. The waiting is especially difficult on my clients. I think that um, human beings have a very difficult time dealing with uncertainty and not knowing what the future holds for you when you are on, when you're in a situation that's so 
difficult that it wears. It, it, I mean, it's very much wearing on my clients. And their, their ability to believe that, in fact, our justice system will actually come to bear on their situation, will actually hear what they have to say, their belief that that's going to happen is very much waning. I and my and the other lawyers that represent the men at Guantanamo have been telling our clients that they need to be patient, that this is working through the court systems, that we hope that the Supreme Court will finally rule that these men can be heard in a, in a U.S. court of justice. And now, finally, we're here. And then yet again, I have to inform my clients that they have to be patient, that their cases are not going to get started right away, that we are in line waiting for the government to come forward with the information that they claim is a justification for holding them. Not that the government would specifically do this, but if they were to just stall indefinitely on providing this information, how would that be addressed? Well, that's one of our fears. There was a schedule set by the court, and within a month, the government said, we can't meet that schedule. Now, this is a court order. This is serious business, right? This is one branch of government ordering another branch of government to do a particular thing. And the executive branch said, sorry, we can't meet that schedule. So our first thought was this is just more delay, right? Because ultimately, what the government doesn't want to do is to come into an open court of law and justify why these men are there. Because there are tremendous problems for them in doing that. Because for some men, there's simply, the justification simply does not exist. And for other men, they don't have evidence that a court of law would, would allow. I mean, one of my clients is a perfect example. He was subjected to what has been referred to as extrajudicial um, rendition, which simply means moving men around the world in order to put them in secret places so that no court of law, that no uh, rule of law is available. He was disappeared in the United Arab Emirates, possibly at the bequest of the United States. He was tortured. He was then transferred to a CIA secret prison in Afghanistan where the torture continued. He was then transferred to a military prison in Afghanistan and then transferred to Guantanamo. Now, it seems to me that the United States doesn't want any of that information ever seeing the light of day. And so this habeas proceeding that I hope someday will happen is not something that they want to happen. And so, yes, I do believe that the government is going to delay as much as they possibly can, perhaps to put this off on to the next administration in January of, of 2009. So for the people who are in Guantanamo, the detainees, how has this ruling changed their lives sort of on an everyday basis, if at all? It, on an everyday basis, not one iota. And this is very much a problem because as lawyers, we sort of, you know, we, we trumpet this decision as, you know, the you know, this wonderful example, you know, of one of the, I think, wonderful things about our constitutional system is that the Supreme Court has has said that, you know, the president is not beyond the law. The president has to adhere to the law. And that's a wonderful thing. But in reality, what how it works on the ground for our clients is they haven't seen any results. In fact, there's a fascinating um, case which is in, involves a set of men. They're, they're called the Uyghurs. They're Chinese nationals. They um, actually live on the border of Afghanistan. It's a part of China that's highly contested. There's an independence movement by the Uyghurs. And these men, unfortunately, had been in Afghanistan at the time of the U.S. invasion back in 2001 and were swept up in the, in the chaos of war, taken into U.S. custody, brought to Guantanamo, there's no basis for them to be held there. And we finally actually have a court of law 
who found that. Um, not in the habeas context, but we did have a circuit court decide in another context called the Detainee Treatment Act, which is simply a mechanism that allows for court review of whether or not um, this person is an enemy combatant, which is a definition the, the government has devised. Um, anyway, these Uyghurs, the court has decided that, in fact, there appears to be no reason to believe that they're enemy combatants. The court hasn't ordered their release, and they're still languishing at Guantanamo. So once again, the men there wonder, why do we constantly, you know, sort of put faith in the courts to remedy their situation when they have yet to see that? You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I'm speaking today on the show with Martha Rayner. Rayner's an associate clinical professor at Fordham Law School. She's also the lawyer representing several of the Guantanamo detainees. In a few minutes, we'll speak with forensic psychologist Barry Rosenfeld about determining what's happened to U.S. detainees while they've been in custody. But first, I asked Martha Rayner to tell me what would happen to the Guantanamo detainees if their detention was found to be illegal. If a court finds in a habeas case, that there's not a justification to hold a particular individual man, that person will be ordered released. Um, And the first uh, location that the U.S. government will look for is their home country, to repatriate them to their home country. And for most of the men there, that's possible, and that's how it will happen. For some men, they're not able to return to their home country because they fear abuse or mistreatment upon their return because their home country has a reputation for that kind of conduct. And in fact, our own Department of State would not allow that kind of transfer because they've also agreed the risk of um, abuse is is too great. Which countries would that be? Well, the Uyghurs are a classic example, right? The U.S. has agreed not to transfer the Uyghurs back to China because they're convinced they actually do face persecution. On the other hand, there's Libyan men who have fought their repatriation, and the the U.S. government has sent them back to Libya. There are a few Algerian men who have fought repatriation to Algeria. They have been repatriated to Algeria. So right now, China is the only example that I can think of. Most of the men who have been returned to their countries have not gone home because of any court order. They've gone home because their home countries have worked diplomatically with their counterparts in the U.S. to get their men home. And the vast, vast, vast majority of those men have all been released upon return, not necessarily right away, but after several months um, have been released from their home country's detention system. So typically what does happen to people when they are repatriated? So it varies. It varies from country to country. One example is the Saudi model, as it has come to be called. Um, When men go back to Saudi Arabia, the Saudis have set up a re, I guess what we would sort of equate with a rehabilitation program of sorts. It's, It's a locked facility, but loosely. It's not a prison, per se. And they're basically put through a program to try to reintegrate them back into society. One feature of the program is... Um, religious clerics come in to try to talk to them about their brand of Islam to the extent it doesn't match up with the brand of Islam that the Saudis would like to have their population adhere to. The Saudi men are actually given money. They're actually um, encouraged to get married. They're given money to have weddings. 
Um, some of them are provided with jobs. And the real goal is is reintegration. Another example, and I think the more common example, is you know Algeria, Yemen, Afghanistan, where men are held for a certain period of time. The home country examines whether or not they violated any domestic law, any of their laws, and if they haven't, they're released. Although there is a little bit of a different model in Afghanistan because the U.S. is building prisons in Afghanistan. We're, we're very fearful that really what's happening with the Afghani detainees is they're, they're really essentially being transferred to just another U.S. prison. It's not, in, it's not Guantanamo, um, and so the U.S. has sort of rid itself of that political liability of holding Afghanis in Guantanamo, but they put them into U.S. prisons in Afghanistan. Now, there's controversy about that, right? They say, no, these aren't U.S. prisons. They're actually run by the Afghanis. But it appears that that's not really true, that the Afghanis don't have full control over who enters and exits those prisons. So it's, it's a, it is a problem, and it's something that advocates, human rights advocates, people that want to make sure the rule of law is adhered to are very concerned about and are monitoring. Yeah, is that something that we can expect to hear more about in the future? The, there's several men in those situations who have filed habeas petitions in U.S. courts saying that just like the men at Guantanamo, we should be able to come to U.S. court and challenge our detention, our our military, our U.S. military detention. But again, the military's position is you're not you're not in U.S. military detention. These are not our prisons. So it's really a question of whether it's really proxy detention. In fact, it is U.S. detention, but under the guise of Afghani detention. So I think yes, I think you'll be hearing more about this in the future. So we're talking about this as if it's a sort of continuing static type situation, but in fact, things are going to change hugely after January of next year when we have a new president. What do you anticipate happening there? Well, both uh, candidates, McCain and and uh, and uh, Obama, have said that they wish to close Guantanamo. Neither candidate has put any details or meat on that declaration. They haven't suggested how they intend to go about doing that. One insight we have into this is after the the Supreme Court's decision this summer, Obama praised that decision and said that it really was a return to the rule of law and to our constitutional principles. McCain lashed out quite strongly against that decision. And so I think I think what's going to happen is if um, Obama is elected president, I think he will work very hard to repatriate the men at Guantanamo to determine who who are the men that should be subjected to a criminal justice process. I think he'll bring those men to the United States. I think he'll subject them to a civilian criminal justice system, charge them with crimes related to terrorism, try them, and let justice seek its course. I think if McCain is elected president, I think he'll attempt to maintain a military system. In other words, saying that these men don't deserve our civilian justice system and sort of keep this into a war paradigm and a military paradigm and essentially say, in time of war, we can do what we want, we'll do what we can to close Guantanamo, but it's really completely at the discretion of the executive. What do you think we'll be looking at in, say, four years? I think Guantanamo will be behind us in four years. My one worry is that we've we've devoted billions of dollars to infrastructure at, at Guantanamo. We've built two super maximum security prisons there. And so I worry that it will be difficult for us just on a, a sort of a logistical level to abandon this infrastructure. But I do think that what has gone on is not sustainable and that we will, I think in the coming years, we will move back into looking at terrorism more through 
a law enforcement perspective. In other words, seeing these men as criminals, and we have to deal with them as criminals. That's not to say that we're going to wait for the attack to happen and then prosecute people after the crime has been committed. Um, But I think we will move away from thinking about this as a global war that can be fought anywhere in the world and in any way, and that we can exert military force against any person anywhere. I think we're going to pull away from that. Are you being kind of optimistic there? I am. I'm an optimistic person. You could ask someone else this question who's less optimistic, and they might see, you know, doom should be there, should there be a McCain presidency. But I do think that these these policies are not sustainable. These policies are unlawful. To hold a human being um, essentially cut off from the world um, without any without having to answer to anyone is so fundamentally um, wrong. Um, it's just not. It's just not a policy that I think can be sustained. Now, it's true. It's gone on for almost seven years now. But I do think change, change, change has happened. We have seen change over the course of the seven years. We have not seen a court of law ultimately rule that this is unlawful, this kind of detention is unlawful. And as a lawyer, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for um, that kind of a declaration to get us back on track. But I have seen... Um, I have seen men gone home. I've seen my clients gone home. Gone home, um, and I think that to some extent, um, I, I, I take. I guess I try to focus on that progress. Well, Martha Rayner is an associate clinical professor of law at Fordham Law School. Martha, thanks for coming back. Thank you. And you can hear my previous conversation with Martha Rayner in our audio archive at WFUV.org. It's the Fordham Conversations show from March 31st, 2007. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That's this morning at 7.30. But first, central to many of the allegations of abuse in the war on terror are the claims that U.S. detainees have been tortured by their jailers. A recent report by the group Physicians for Human Rights provides medical evidence that detainees were tortured at Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and that they've been affected by this. Some of this evidence comes from forensic psychology, where doctors evaluate patients for signs of past abuse. One of the psychologists who evaluated former U.S. detainees for this report is Barry Rosenfeld. Rosenfeld is a professor of psychology and the director of the doctoral program in clinical psychology at Fordham. He conducted evaluations of several former U.S. detainees in Istanbul, Turkey, and he joined me in the studio earlier this week. I began by asking him how, as a forensic psychologist, he identifies a traumatic experience that might have happened a couple of years before. There there are parts of it that are simple and there are parts of it that are not. So it's very simple for me to, in some ways, it's simple for me to do an evaluation of someone and determine whether they are suffering from any symptoms or problems or disorders today as I speak to them. And it's it's not a whole lot more of a stretch to get an idea of how what I'm seeing today is an improvement or a worsening of what they were like a month ago, a year ago, two years ago. So getting a sense of what the person's functioning is like, in some sense, that's what we do in mental health, right? People come into our offices. They say, I'm depressed. I'd like some help. And then we go about and evaluate them, and we try to get a sense of, well, just how depressed are you? And and then we start thinking about why, and we start asking questions that we think will help shed light on that. And that's where things get a little bit more complicated. 
let's take Abu Ghraib for an example. So there, there are so many things that have happened to these men who are Iraqi men. So in addition to having had this experience of being being beaten and, and abused and imprisoned, they also have had their entire country essentially demolished. Many of them have lost family members. Whatever their normal life was beforehand is certainly gone. So they've experienced all sorts of other really horrible experiences that no doubt have also played a role to some extent in the symptoms that they might be having now. So if I'm seeing someone today and saying, well, they look depressed today, figuring out how much of that, and it's it's not an exact science in the sense that I can't say, well, 42% of that is from the incarceration and 58% of that or 50% of that is from the other things that have happened in the country and 8% is what they were like beforehand because, of course, some people get depressed even when bad things don't happen to them. You know, one of the, the basic things we try to figure out is looking at the person's symptoms in, in sort of a timeline. By and large, we haven't always felt the way we feel today. So it's not implausible to think we can go back and think, okay, well, when did that really start to worsen? And where does that fall on the timeline? And presumably, finding that symptoms either began or worsened after some really bad experiences, well, that starts to give some support. So, you know, we can we can first look at that timeline. Second, we can look at the nature of people's symptoms. And so, for example, there's a diagnosis that's very common in this sort of scenario that we call post-traumatic, post-traumatic stress disorder. And part of post-traumatic stress disorder often is either the avoidance of events or situations or places or memories, that, that things that remind us of the trauma. Uh, sometimes the, the individual will have intrusive memories and reminders, so they'll have nightmares in which they're kind of reliving or just flashbacks when they're awake. And, and those are symptoms that, again, assuming credibility, we can start to have a little bit more confidence. If someone's having a nightmare about being locked in, in a jail uh, and, and held captive in the pitch dark, and they're having that nightmare every so often, and it's you know this extremely upsetting experience when they have it, and that's what they had gone through, as part of their their captivity, well, it's not a huge logical jump to say, well, that's probably why they're having that nightmare. So you're in Istanbul and you're starting to do these evaluations. What are your first impressions of these men when you meet them? Uh, well, that's a great question. You know, I don't know that I could answer them as a group because they're all really so individual. Um, I think there were certainly striking things about them. One of them that, that I was struck by was that the fact that they were even willing to talk to us because, as you might imagine, they harbor a fair bit of animosity towards our country in general. And so the fact that they were willing to kind of sit down and talk to us and they had American lawyers and they were uh, involved in this process at all, it really was sort of a remarkable degree to me, a remarkable degree of, uh, in essence, confidence in the system. And it's not even their system, but confidence in, in our legal system that we would give a fair hearing to these issues and that they wouldn't be, you know, further, uh, they, they wouldn't be further traumatized or abused or, or misused in any in any way. So that was probably one of the most striking things was just that we were actually even doing these evaluations at all. You know, I think beyond that, I think the difference is, you know, it's it's like asking what any group of eight people were like or any group of 12 people were like. You know, each one was so different. So some seemed kind of surprisingly Western and modern. And some were, you know, kind of more what I guess maybe my stereotype might have been in terms of, you know, the, the very much 
uh, a more rural person, you know, wearing more traditional garb and really without much of a kind of a Western sensibility. And, you know, they were really all over the map in, in that sense. And they were all over the map in terms of how well they were handling the abuse. And they were all over the map in terms of the severity of the abuse. Well, let me ask you this to close. This has been dragging on for quite some time, this whole situation. Have you found that in that time, in the last, gosh, was it seven years, six years, there's been a certain loss of interest in these topics and these prisoners? I, I think there's a lot of interest. I think it's not foremost on America's radar screen because the economy is obviously taking the front seat and, uh, and, and you know, we have a presidential election. But, you know, as soon as this election is over, I think this is going to be very much in in the forefront again. You know, we're going to have to figure out what we're doing in Iraq and what we're doing with the hundreds of men who are at Guantanamo Bay. And, you know, it's not going to go on forever. So at least I hope it doesn't go on forever. So I, I, I guess I see this as not something that people have lost interest in, but something that's just not kind of front and center in their in their visual field these days. Well, Barry Rosenfeld is a professor of psychology and the director of the doctoral program in clinical psychology at Fordham. He's also a research consultant to the Bellevue NYU program for survivors of torture. Barry Rosenfeld, thanks so much. Thank you. That recent report from Physicians for Human Rights is Broken Laws, Broken Lives, Medical Evidence of Torture by U.S. Personnel and Its Impact. You can read the whole report at physiciansforhumanrights.org. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful weekend.